Well, good morning from my side. That wasn't much of a reaction, but that's okay. <laughs> As I was sitting there this morning, Charles looked at the songs that were going to be sung before every message, and he saw Silent Night on my message, and he said, maybe, that, maybe it means you should preach a silent sermon. <laughs> so, one of the things that, that attracted me actually in Torch Bears when I first went to staff conference was how loud they sung and from their hearts and then how loud they laughed as they teased each other. It seems to be a spiritual gift in Torch Bears. I want to add my thanks to the student body here at His Hill uh, for your service to us this week. I know... Um, from our families that come to our conferences, to be able to sit under the teaching of the Word of God and know that your children are well taken care of is a huge ministry. And we have had parents come to our family weeks and say, you know, you offered us a night off and took care of our kids. We haven't had a night off in three years. And sometimes we underestimate what that can mean to a family. So I want to thank you for that. I also want to thank you for the way in which you uh, served us and greeted us when the delegates were here. Uh, some of the delegates said, gee, the students here are so nice. They're so friendly. And uh, that stood out very, very clearly uh, to them and to us. And I thank you for that. And we wish you God's blessing as you continue here at His Hill this school year. This is, of course, our last session, and Gabby and I will uh, leave tomorrow morning. We'll go to Minnesota, where I have ministry in a church on Sunday, and then we'll have time with my family. I have, my mom is still living. She lives in an assistant living facility, and uh, she's 88, and she's got Parkinson's, and that's taking its course. And uh, she's praying for us during uh, this week here at His Hill. Uh, I remember in 1984 when I called my parents and told them that I was asked to stay at Bodensdorf. Um, first thing mom said was, I had a feeling this was going to happen. But the thing that they have done over uh, four decades is they've never let it, made it difficult for me to be away from them. And they've never complained. They've never said, when are you going to come back? That's a lot of anniversaries, a lot of birthdays, a lot of births a lot of family events that we've missed, and they have never complained, for which I'm very thankful, and they have been our greatest supporters and prayer warriors. And it's also made me aware of the fact that, yes, our obedience to Christ will cost us something, but it will also cost those closest to us. And those closest to us didn't necessarily make the decision, but they live with the consequences of our decisions to follow Christ. And I'm thankful that my parents have released us to him in the way that uh, they have. So this is our last session in John chapter 15. And I would like to read John chapter 15, verse 5, and John chapter 15, and verse 8. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove 
to be my disciples. Twice in this passage, Jesus said, I will abide in him. That's Christ's promise. And he is absolutely faithful to stay where he is. And when I received Christ, I literally received Christ. And he came to dwell in me by the presence of his spirit. And what that means to the Christian is something that, that provides so much security. We belong to the one who said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, actually in the original language it says, and I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you. And that's a wonderful truth that Christ came to live in us by his spirit. The moment I received him when I was born again, we never have to ask him to go with us. We never have to ask him to return to us. I've heard people say, yeah, but I, you know, I went to camp and received Christ again. You can't receive Christ again. Once he comes, he comes to stay. And he says, I will abide or I will stay in you. And it is a discipline for us initially, and it turns into a pleasure, into a rhythm in our soul to very simply thank the Lord Jesus that he lives in us every day and at all times. I never have to ask him to come back. And yet some people say to me, yeah, but I don't feel him. That is not the point. We should never let the feelings of his absence blind us from the truth of his presence. We can't let that determine our, our, our disposition of faith. Yes, he may be grieved. Yes, he may be quenched, but he never leaves us. And so we needn't ask him to come back. Well, this morning we're talking about fruit, and when Charles was speaking in the first session, I was sitting there saying to myself, no, 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 don't talk about that. You're getting onto the territory that we have this morning. But that is often the case, you know, when the Lord orchestrates things, and the Lord is our teacher, uh, he will put things on our hearts that are familiar to us all. And so he was speaking about some things that I'll repeat in the message this morning. Fruit is the physical, visible outworking of an invisible, indwelling life. That's fruit. Fruit is the life of the vine made visible. When we speak about the vine and the branch. And all fruit has its origin in the vine, not the branch. The branch is the means through which the vine reproduces himself. But the branch is not the origin of the fruit. The vine is. Also, it's important to know that the branch is to bear fruit. The branch is not called to produce the fruit. The branch bears the fruit that the vine produces. And also it's important to know that the command uh, of Christ to the branch is not uh, to produce fruit. The command is to abide in him. The fruit is the outworking. He, he didn't command the branch to produce fruit or even to bear fruit. He said, 
my command is that you abide in me. Pay attention to me. Well, fruit is the life of Christ made visible. Spiritual fruit has its origin in Christ, not the Christian. And my, my sole responsibility in all of my responsibilities is to pay attention to Christ. Not to copy his life, but to allow him to reproduce his life in me. And this first starts internally, and then it will work out externally. And um, this is what happens when Christ comes to live within me. He is going to use a number of different things to expose what he wants to correct and transform in my heart. And he will expose me first on the inside. And you know, when, when I got married, I'll tell you what happened. I was exposed because God is going to use his word, his spirit, and his people to expose me to me. And this is going to happen constantly, and he needs to do that so that I might know what I need to be re repenting of. And man, when I got married, uh, I realized what a self-centered and proudful person I was. And this was, it just undid me. And I don't know how many times I had to even go to my children and apologize and say, you know, the way in which I said that or did that, that was not Jesus. I need to ask for your forgiveness. And the whole time I'm headed to them to ask for that forgiveness, I'm insisting, well, I'm the father, they're the kid. And, and the Lord was making plain to me, yes, that's right. But you lashed out in anger and said something that wasn't according to my character. So go make these things right. It's important that we do that. And this work is going to start internally before it becomes external because it starts in our hearts. The English word uh, convict comes from two Latin words which mean with victory. And when the Spirit convicts us of things that are not in order in our hearts, it's actually the fact that he comes with victory to correct where there has been failure or error. And so that's a good thing. Furthermore, I would ask, I would let us know as well that Christ does not automatically have access to my heart. You know, we speak about the fact Christ came to live in my heart. Well, initially, his spirit comes to occupy my dead spirit. But if he has access to my heart, that is dependent upon if I am abiding in him or not. But it doesn't happen automatically. It's something that I need to allow him to do. It is for this reason that Paul said in his prayer, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul prays, and here's his prayer, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that doesn't automatically take place. It takes place according to my faith. And he gets out of my spirit into my heart. What is the heart? Well, popular culture tells us that the heart is our emotions, and that's not necessarily true. 
The heart is the place of my core convictions and motives. It's the place from which my character stems, and it's certainly the place of my conscience. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, Scripture speaks about our hearts being cleansed from an evil conscience. It's the place and the starting point of my moral being, my character. And Jesus doesn't have immediate access to that unless I give it to him. And this is why the person who is indwelt by the Spirit but is not abiding in Christ is going to differ very little from the person who has never uh, received Christ in the first place. Their quality of life will basically be the same. It depends upon my responsibility to abide in Christ. And initially, he wants access to my heart. And as somebody said, really the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 about the heart. He was actually rebuking uh, the Pharisees who said, you clean the ups outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty. And he says this in, in uh, Mark chapter 7. He says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the, the precepts of men. And then he says this in verse 14. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. That which proceeds out of the man defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and devile the heart. And that's where Jesus starts this work. You see, the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. I'm the emergency. My heart is where these things come from. And Christianity is, is not behavior modification. It is transformation from within by his spirit as Jesus gains access to my heart by his spirit and initially begins to, con to, to convict me of these things that I need to repent of to let me know my need for him to do the work internally and and as i've said you know feeling feeling hate towards a person and then feeling obligated to extend love to them on the outside that is not christianity that's hypocrisy christianity is the miracle that starts within when christ begins to as it says in the book of hebrews write his law on my heart he begins to change my moral motivations. And he changes my character from the inside out. And I must give Jesus access to my heart. How do I do that? I reckon with his presence. And I say, Lord Jesus, you may have all of me like I have all of you. 
At Bodensjof, we have a dormitory, and in our dormitory, there are three rooms with ten people in them. That's a lot of people. The people and the students from the third world countries come and stand in the doorway of the ten room the first day of school if they've been assigned to that room, and they look into the room and they see ten beds in there, and they say, what? Only nine other people in this room? This is fantastic. Glad to be here. Then the people from Los Angeles come and they stand in the same doorway and they see 10 beds in that room and they say, what? I need to share this room with nine other people. My bedroom at home is this size and I'm alone in there. And then they'll add on the comment to me, but Peter, I'm working on my patience. And I think to myself, go ahead and work on your patience. You're just going to discover what an in-person, angry, impatient and angry person you are. I don't work on my patience. Patience is a miracle. Patience is what Christ reproduces in my life. And from start to finish, the Christian life is nothing less than the miraculous activity of Christ. It's him, not me. I don't need the small miracles like my leg being lengthened three centimeters. I need the big miracles. I need the miracle of patience in my heart that Jesus produces. Because I know in and of myself how impatient and self-centered I am. And so I live in this attitude at one and the same time. Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm not patient. Look at my impatience. And I don't just repent to the bad that I do, but the good that I can't do. Lord Jesus, I'm not patient. And I turned to him in my bankruptcy and I said, Lord Jesus, take my impatient heart and do the miracle because I don't have patience for this person. That's the Christian life. And I know it sounds like such a paradox, but we live at one and the same time in the knowledge of our destitution, but also in the knowledge of his presence and his willingness to do the transforming in my heart. First, it is internal, and then it's external. The truth of the matter is that the minute I try to be spiritual, I'm not, by virtue of the fact that I tried. Because the only thing spiritual about Peter Reed is the Spirit of God. And he produces the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of the saint. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you were to go to the book of Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, at the end of verse 11... Paul had been talking about the fact that nobody brings an advantage to the Christian life. There's Jew and Gentile. There are circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian. Uh, Scythians were the intelligent ones. And, and then he says, but Christ is all and in all. We're all on equal ground. Nobody brings a human advantage. And then he says in verse 12 of Colossians 3, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. But it's important to note that the command is not be compassionate, be kind, be humble, be gentle, be patient. That's not the command. 
The command is put on a heart of. Well, if I have to put on a heart, it means that it doesn't belong to me in the first place. It's like putting on my clothes this morning. They don't automatically belong to me. And so he says, put on a heart of. How do I do that? I abide in Christ. And I live in a disposition of heart that says, I'm not compassionate. I'm not kind. I'm not gentle. I'm not humble. But Lord Jesus, you're those things, and I come in utter dependence upon you who lives in me now. Lord, do the miracle internally in me to produce these things. And I live in the knowledge of my need, and I'm never done with that. We never outgrow our need for Jesus. You know, it's interesting, in John chapter 4, when Jesus was standing, um, excuse me, John chapter 8, and he was standing with the woman who had been caught in adultery. And then he says, he who is with the, uh, without sin, uh, throw the first stone. It says specifically, the older ones went away first. Why? Because the older you get, the more conscious you are of your need for Christ. We never outgrow that. In fact, if anything happens, we recognize our need for it in a greater way the older we get. And Christ begins to transform the motives of my heart. And this then works its way out in the way that I think, the way that I feel, the way that I decide, and ultimately the way that I behave. And it's interesting as well that in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, Paul speaks about marriage, family, and then masters and servants. And he addresses the three relationships in which we will spend the most time. Isn't that interesting? You see, if you want to know how spiritual I am, it's very easy. You just talk to Gabi. She'll tell you. And that's humbling. I would hope that she would say, he's making progress. I hope that my children would say, he's making progress. The three relationships in which we'll spend the most time, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where my abiding in Christ actually takes on shape and form in those three relationships in which I'll spend the most time, marriage, family, and my place of employment. It doesn't say with my friends. And it's also significant that each one of those relationships are relationships that God uses to describe his relationship with his people. He speaks about his bride, he speaks about his son, and he speaks about his servant. And that is why God places a special protection and gives commands about those relationships, because it's those relationships that are to be a reflection of and the manifestation of Christ. In the way that a husband treats his wife, and the wife responds to her husband, in the way that a father treats his son, in the way that a son treats his parents, the way that a master pre- treats his employee, and the way that an employee treats his employer. 
That's where the, mother, the, the, the rubber meets the road. How will this take place? Through abiding in Christ. On our property at Bodensdorf, I probably have said this here at His Hill, but we've got a, a number of different kinds of fruit trees in, in, in our uh, orchard. There are apple, pear, prune, and cherry trees. If you said to me in February, you know, show me the apple tree. There are some who can do this, but I can't. I would say, well, I don't know. I just see a bunch of green leaves. If we were to go out in May when the, they're blossoming, blossoming, you would say, Peter, show me the apple tree. While there are, there are white, there are pink, and there are dark red blossoms, I don't know. If you said to me in August, Peter, show me the apple tree, I'd say that one. How do you know? There's apples on it. You see, the, the fruit reveals the root. And... You identify the life of Christ pretty easily. It's located in the fruit. His life becomes visible. And we should be glad about this because he makes plain what comes from him and what doesn't in order that you and I might remain in this disposition of dependence upon him through our repentance and faith. He wants to bring fruit that remains. Fruit that remains. I said already that uh, a, a, a gardener or a vine dresser in Israel uh, waited until the fifth year to harvest it himself. Uh, for three years, he, took, he, he let it just grow. The fourth year, he gave the harvest as an offering. The fifth year, he ate it. The point is that fruit takes time. Fruit takes time. And time is an element in this whole process whereby God may take his time to produce the fruit. And other people are going to need other people are going to see this. But it's got to come from him. Personally, I'm a little bit leery of the emphasis today on mentoring. I understand the value of it. I understand that, that we actually are an extension of Christ to people, and that should be. But we can never cling to a Christian at the expense of Christ. And a good mentor is going to lead a person directly to Jesus. Because a good mentor will know, someday I'm not going to be here. And if I have insisted on this codependent relationship with somebody, or they with me, when I'm gone, they're going to fold. The greatest compliment to our ministry is that somebody goes away from our lives and they follow Jesus for themselves. The greatest compliment <clears throat> to the ministry of John the Baptist was that he lost his congregation to Jesus. He said, follow him, not me. We tend to be oriented around results. We tend to be result-oriented. If you'd look up here, uh, sometimes I'm here and we're looking to have results in an enterprise here. I'm very result-oriented. Uh, you know, I'm noticing that God is more process-oriented because it's the process along the way to the result 
that he is using to make me like Jesus, which is the greater work. And he takes time to do that. Maturity is not necessarily measured in activity. And motion doesn't necessarily mean progress. Success in the Christian life is the extent to which I'm abiding in Christ. And I have to leave the results with him. The fruit is his business. And you think of somebody like Isaiah in the scripture who preached for about 60 years and at his ordination in <laughs> Isaiah chapter 6, God said, you're going to preach and you're going to make the heart of this people like stone. And so Isaiah asked a good question. How long do I have to do that? God said, until the cities are empty and the land is desolate. And Isaiah never saw the results of his ministry. And if Isaiah was working with a mission society today, they would have concluded, obviously, he doesn't have the gift of preaching. Obviously, he's hiding some sin. They would have stopped his support and called him home. But Isaiah understood success in ministry. It was abiding. The success in ministry is not necessarily the amount of fruit or when it happens because Isaiah needed to wait for over 700 years before the fruit of his ministry took place. For instance, in Acts chapter 8, when God sent Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he runs up to the Mercedes and he, 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 the guy rolls down the window and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy was reading the prophet Isaiah. And outside of the Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the, in the New Testament, from the Old Testament. And sometimes we may never see the fruit of our ministry. So we can't necessarily judge our success by the fruit. It was years ago that um, a, a, a student from Canada told me that their father was a truck driver and he drove from the West Coast to the East Coast and back. And the student had given them, this is a while ago, the cassette tapes of the lectures we had in Colossians. And they said, when I came back from, from Bible school at Bodensio, if I gave my dad those, those cassette tapes so he could listen to them as he drove back and forth from the West to the East Coast and back. And by the time he got home, he had received Christ. And it made me aware of the fact that, you know, we ne met, never may know what the effect of our ministry and our lives are going to be. There's a, a, a marvelous... Uh, ministry in Germany. It's called co-workers and they send um, young people out to help missionaries on the field with various responsibilities. And I was asked to go and do a Bible study with them. And as I was doing so, uh, after the first meeting, a, a woman came up to me and she said, I don't belong to co-workers. I don't belong to this mission. But I just wanted to see the person whose voice I had been listening to. Because somebody had sent a CD to her as she lived in an area of Africa where they didn't have electricity and she, she had a solar-powered CD player. And she said, that CD was the only spiritual food I had. Thank you. You may never know the effect or the fruit of your ministry. And that doesn't need to be our business. 
In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are God's works. And he doesn't need us to be, uh, you know, strategic. He doesn't need us to uh, just pursue efficiency. I like efficiency and we should do things well. But sometimes they can't. And it says the works that God does, those are the good works. And the word for workmanship in my translation is the word from which we get our English word poem. We're the poem of God. I can send a message to my staff in bullet points, just communicate information to them. But if somebody writes a poem, it is a revelation of their ability, of their creativity. And so we, see, so we say things like, have you read Shakespeare? Have you read Tennyson? Have you read Frost? Because something of the, the poet is revealed in their poem. We're the poem of God. And so, as I said, that's why the process is as important as the product for him. And that's going to take time. I was speaking about these things in Austria years ago, and uh, it was in the city of Dornbirn. It's near the Bodensee. Some of the German students will recognize that. And a woman came up to me after the message, and she said, you know, why don't I see more fruit in my Christian life? She was discouraged. And probably if we were honest, we could echo that statement. And this is what I said. I said, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And there's the fruit out at that end. There's a temptation as a branch to want to look in that direction, to see the fruit, to see that the Christian life functions. The problem with that is that the more you look in that direction, the more the abiding relationship right here is in some way disturbed. And the really bad thing is, the more you look, the less there will be, and the less there is, the more you look, the more you look, the less there is, and pretty soon you have fallen into the black hole of introspection, one of the biggest thieves in the Christian life that I know about. Don't look for the fruit. And should God allow you to be, ever become aware of the fruit, don't stay there too long polishing the fruit and telling God what, how thankful he could be to have a branch like you because it didn't have its origin in you, but in Christ. And it's interesting, if I, you know, review my life in the Lord, it is just those people who have been least aware of it that have influenced me the most. It's not the people who got me in the corner in church and you know, pounded on my chest and said, you need to change. It's the people who were so uh, preoccupied with Christ, they had this beautiful way about them. They were unaware of the influence they were having on others, nor did they ever seek to pay attention to it. Those were the ones that influenced me the most. And I go away from them saying, I want to know Jesus like that because I feel like I've just been in the presence of Jesus. We tend to take ourselves too seriously. 
And there is an element of pride in the Christian life. We like to be needed. I was wallowing in a little bit of self-pity one day, and my wife noticed this. And she went out to our vine, and she cut off a branch. And she put this in front of my face and said, this is all you are. So let's get on with the job. And so I keep this with me wherever I go. Because it was a good reminder. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about the vine. It says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 15 this. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul said, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. So God is the one who does the evaluation. I don't need to take my spiritual temperature all the time. He does the examination. And if there's an adjustment that needs to take place in my life, he will be faithful to reveal that to me. I pay attention to Christ. And if an adjustment needs to be, take place internally, God can make me aware of that. And he does so very faithfully. He'll teach you the how. He'll teach you as you go. And so we need to pay attention to the inner conviction of the Spirit who would have access to our hearts and pay attention to a lack of peace or peace in our hearts. And you learn this by doing. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14, the end of that chapter, the writer to the Hebrews says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And that will take place the more we pay attention to Christ. And there will be situations where we just have this inner sense this is wrong. Or we may not even know why that sense is there. Then we ask the Lord, Lord, why am I ill at ease on the inside? Why is there a lack of peace? Show me this. Show me where I need to make an adjustment so that I can be rightly abiding in Christ. And he'll do that. And, and the more we respond and the more quickly we respond, we will gain insight and discernment to these things through the inner conviction of his spirit. Let me close with this. Somebody said that faith is like an eye. Faith sees everything else but itself. Faith looks at Christ, doesn't pay attention to this itself. Faith doesn't look at its faith. Faith looks at the faithful one the one who, who is abiding within him. And I love the way that Charles Spurgeon put this. He said, I looked to Jesus and the dove of peace filled my soul. I looked to the dove of peace and he flew away. 
So we need to leave the fruit with Christ. Be and pay attention to Christ. Leave the fruit. Leave the self-examination and this, this introspection, but leave your heart open to him and say, Lord, my heart is too uh, wicked to discern. You do the evaluation, and if there's some adjustment that needs to be made, please make me aware of that. And you do this step by step by step, and he begins to give you discernment. So that's where I want to end this morning. And would that the Lord Jesus teaches these things once we leave this place. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. At home, in our family, in our place of employment, in the church, in our neighborhood, in our school. That's where abiding makes the difference. So I want to do what I did already one time this week. I'd just like to pause for 60 seconds. And in whatever way the Lord has spoken to you this week, let's take this opportunity simply to respond to him in the silence of these 16, 60 seconds. And then I'll close in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus who will never leave us or give up on us. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us more of what it means to abide in you. Lord, we want to expose our hearts to you. And if there's an adjustment that needs to be made on our side, please make us aware of that. Please bring these things into the light so that I might know where I need to change my mind and come to you in my need for you to do the transforming work from the inside out. Lord, we need this so bad, and I want to thank you for these days and would ask that your word would bear fruit in the days to come for your own name's sake. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.